If you turn to Psalm 44, as we begin our study this morning, this is Psalm 44. And I want you to notice when you come to Psalm 44, notice the superscription of the psalm. In the King James translation, it'll render it to the chief musician for the sons of Korah, Moskil. The New American Standard Bible renders it for the choir director, a maskil of the sons of Korah. And then the NIV renders it for the director of music of the sons of Korah, a maskil. Now think about the superscription. You first have this little phrase to the chief musician or for the choir director or for the director of music. That expression is found in 55 of the superscriptions of the 150 Psalms. So we will read that expression 55 times. And it certainly is connoting a musical edition, certainly telling us that this was to be a part of corporate worship in the tabernacle and temple And it was something that was to be recited by the leader or by the director of the choir. So you simply read it here for the choir director or for the director of music. Then you read this phrase of the sons of Korah. Now, when you read that phrase of the sons of Korah, we'll read that in 12 different Psalms. You have it from Psalm 42 all the way to Psalm 49. In every superscription, you have it. You also have it in Psalms 84 and 85 and 87 and 88. So when you read the phrase, Sons of Korah, think Psalms 42 through 49, 84 and 85, 87 and 88. Those are the Psalms that have this within its superscription of the sons of Korah. And if you remember the historical background of Korah, which is found in Numbers chapter 16. Now, when you think of Korah, Korah was a Levite and there was a rebellion. You had 250 people who rebelled, as set forth in number 16. And it was led by Korah, who was a Levite, and two individuals from the tribe of Reuben. You have their names, Dathan and Abiram. And they were jealous over the leadership of Moses and Aaron and There was all of this controversy about it. So if you remember, the Lord demonstrated his power and vindicated the leadership of Moses and Aaron by swallowing up Dathan and Abiram and their families, as well as Korah. Then fire came out from the Lord and killed the 250 who had rebelled. And then when the people complained about what had happened, 
a plague was sent from the Lord where 14,700 Israelites died. And it's all recorded there in Numbers chapter 16. But what's interesting about Numbers chapter 16, you would think that not only did Dathan and Abiram and their families all be killed, but you would also think that Korah and his family would have been killed, but they weren't. We don't read it in Numbers 16. We read it in Numbers 26. Now listen to this as I read it in Numbers 26, verse 9. This is that Dathan and Abiram, who were famous in the congregation, who argued against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they argued against the Lord. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when the company died, what time the fire devoured 250 men, and that became a sign. And then in verse 11 of Numbers 26, we read, Notwithstanding, the sons of Korah died not. The sons of Korah died not. Now, if you read Numbers chapter 16, you would think that they all died. Abiram, Dathan, all of their sons, Korah and his sons, but they didn't. Those families died. But the text says very clearly, the sons of Korah died not. So evidently, Korah was a Levite. The other was Reubenites. He wanted this priestly line intact. He wanted this priestly line to survive because eventually you're going to have celebrated singers that come from Korah and they're involved in corporate worship. So we're reading this uh, superscription in Psalm 44 and we read this opening statement for the choir director, which is found in 55 of these superscriptions. Then we read of the sons of Korah, where you have 12 of these Psalms where you read of the sons of Korah, these sons that came from this one that we read about in number 16. And then we read the word maskil, which is found in 13 of these superscriptions. So 13 times we read this word. And this word means something like, if you remember, to consider or to contemplate. So the psalm was designed to give insight or to give understanding. So this is for the choir director, for the director of music. This is of the sons of Korah, and this is a Moskil psalm. Now, when you move into the psalm, as we talked about last week, this is a lament psalm. And one-third of the psalms are lament psalms. And when you talk about a lament psalm, the psalmist is troubled. He is distressed about something. He has nowhere to turn but to God. He turns to God and he's troubled about his own thoughts and actions or he's troubled about what his enemies are doing or he's troubled about God himself. So when you come to this particular psalm, it's a lament psalm, but it's not an individual lament psalm. It's a national lament psalm. So the psalmist is writing about some military defeat that happened in Israel. We're not sure the historical reference, but something happened. And as a result, he writes this national lament over this military defeat. 
Now that's what we have in terms of Psalm 44. So follow it as I read it. You have the superscription, and and note this. When you read the superscriptions in our English Bibles, in the Hebrew Bible, that's verse 1. Our verse 1 is verse 2. So here's the superscription. For the choir director, a muskil of the sons of Korah. Now follow it as I read the psalm. There are four movements of thought. Here's the first one. Oh God, we've heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, the work that thou didst in their days, in the days of old. Thou with thine own hand did drive out the nations, then thou didst plant them. Thou didst afflict the peoples, then thou didst spread them abroad, for by their own sword they did not possess the land and their own arm did not save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy presence, for thou didst favor them. Thou art my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through thee will push back our adversaries. Through thy name will trample down those who rise up against us. For I'll not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But thou hast saved me from my adversaries, and thou hast put to shame those who hate us. God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to thy name forever. Selah. Then he moves into movement number two, and look at the change. Yet, but, verse nine, thou hast rejected us and brought us to dishonor and dost not go out with our armies. Thou dost cause us to turn back from the adversary. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. Notice this phrase. Thou dost give us as sheep to be eaten and has scattered us among the nations. Thou dost sell thy people cheaply and has not profited by their sell. Thou dost make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing, a derision to those around us. Thou dost make us a boward among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples all day long. My dishonor is before me. My humiliation is overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. Now here's movement number three. Notice the change. 17. All this has come upon us but we have not forgotten thee and we have not dealt falsely with thy covenant. Our heart has not turned back and our steps have not deviated from thy way. Yet thou hast crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for thy sake, we killed all the day long, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Then the last movement of thought, look at the questions. Arouse thyself. Why dost thou sleep, O Lord? Awake. 
do not reject us forever. Why dost thou hide thy face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is sucked out into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of thy, look at the last word of the psalm, loving kindness or unfailing love. Now, when you come to this psalm, Psalm 44, the people are suffering, but they're not suffering because of their sins. They are rather suffering for God's sake. They're rather suffering because they're identified with God. So in their faithfulness to the Lord, they're receiving greater abuse than what they would have experienced if they would have conformed to a pagan world. So here they are. They're suffering all because of their honor of God. And as a result of all of this, they need reassurance. They need reassurance of God's love. So they raise these questions and they receive no answer. There's no resolution to the questions that they raise. There is no despondency here. There is no anger here. But they have difficulty in understanding why they're, they're suffering. And so they ask the Lord to wake up. They know he's not asleep. Psalm 121 verse 4 says he doesn't slumber nor does he sleep. So they understand that, but they're asking the Lord to intervene and do something. But in the final analysis, when you come to the end of the psalm, they submit themselves to the love of God. They know that the Lord entered into a covenant with them, and he promised to them his unfailing love. And the last word in the psalm is that great Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed is found 248 times in the Old Testament. And to show you something of the breadth of the word, the New International Version translates this one Hebrew word by at least 25 different English words. And if you think of the word itself, think of covenant love, think of covenant loyalty. That's the last word in the psalm. So I come to the psalm and I'm reading the words of the psalm. And the psalmist says in verse 22, and I want you to notice again verse 22, but for thy sake, we're killed all day long. We face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he ends the psalm and that last statement in verse 26, redeem us for the sake of, because of your loving kindness, your unfailing love, your hesed. Now from Psalm 44, turn with me to our text in Romans chapter 8. And the subject that I introduced last week 
There is no separation from the love of God that is found for a believer in Jesus Christ. And we are addressing the question that is found in a series of questions asked by the Apostle Paul. And the question is the one that is found in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will part us or divide us from the love of Christ? Who will put us asunder from the love of Christ? Who will cause any space to come between us and the love of Christ? And remember, when you talk about the love of Christ, we're not talking about our love for Christ. We're talking about his love for us that was proven by his own death demonstrated by his death. Now listen to the words of Thomas Brooks, this Puritan writer. There's no other name, no other nature, no other blood, no other merits, no other persons to be justified and saved by, but Jesus Christ. All the tears in the world cannot wipe off one sin, nor can all the grace and holiness that is in angels and men purchase the pardon of the least transgression. All remission is only by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then this, our sins are debts that none can pay but Christ. It's not our tears, but his blood. It's not our sighs but his sufferings that can satisfy for our sins. Christ must pay all or we are prisoners forever. Or listen to the words of George Mueller, who died in 1898. It's a glorious thing to die. I've been active and busy in the world. I've enjoyed as much as anyone. God has prospered me. I have everything to bind me here. I'm happy in my family. I have property enough. But how small and mean does this world appear on a sickbed? Nothing can equal my enjoyment in the near view of heaven. My hope in Christ is worth infinitely more than all other things. The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. None but Christ. Oh, how thankful I feel that God has provided a way that I, sinful as I am, may look forward with joy to another world through his dear son. We're not talking about our love. We're talking about his love. And it was proven and demonstrated by what he did when he paid the penalty of our sins. Now listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in his first letter when he makes this comment to the Galatian believers. But no longer am I living, but Christ lives in me. 
And that which now I'm living in flesh, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Well, listen to his parting words to these believers. But to me, may it never be to boast, but in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which cross, to me, the world has been crucified, and I to the world. Galatians 6, 14. So I come to this question that is raised by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he moves to these possibilities that describe adverse circumstances, beginning with number one, tribulation. Remember, pressure. Outward affliction. Or number two, you remember the word? To be in a narrow, confined place. Here probably, inward distress. Or number three, persecution. The whole process of being harassed and experiencing opposition. A word that Paul will use in his writings five times. Number four, he uses the word famine, which here has to do with being hungry. Or then he uses this fifth word, nakedness, which in this context means to have inadequate clothing. Or number six, he uses the word peril or to be in danger. And then the last word that he uses is the word sword. And if you read the word that is used here, this is the word for a small sword distinguished from that larger sword that you think of almost as a javelin. And if you think of the word sword here, the other time it's used in the book of Romans is in Romans chapter 13 when it's talking about civil government and the authority of civil government. And in Romans chapter 13, we have it in verse 4. For he, this is a ruler, is the servant of God to to thee for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid. Then he gives a reason why. For he bears not the sword in vain. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. Romans 13, 4, which is exactly the same word that is used by Paul in Romans 8, 35. And here you're thinking of sword as an instrument of a magistrate or a judge. We're talking about death by means of the sword. So the civil ruler has the power of life and death. But when you talk about the sword, we're talking about the power of death. So when you look at your last two words in verse 35, danger or sword, danger is the risk of death 
Sword is the experience of death. So the Apostle Paul raises a question. And then he sets forth documentation. Seven possibilities that perhaps could accomplish this, that gain in intensity moving from tribulation to execution, actual martyrdom. Now, that's what we have here. So I read the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then I read of the documentation and these seven possibilities, tribulation or distress or persecution or hunger or lack of clothing or danger or sword. Now, when we read these words that are found here in verse 35, the question followed by the documentation of these seven possibilities, we have to realize that the Apostle Paul was not speaking theoretically nor academically. He wasn't some armchair theologian or some astute philosopher who is trafficking in abstract things. On the contrary, he himself already experienced the first six of these seven hardships before the writing of Romans. The first six of the seven possibilities he's already experienced. Now think about it. Before he writes Romans, what letters has he already written? Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, then Romans. Romans was written around 58 AD. He had already written Galatians around 48. He had already written 1 and 2 Thessalonians around 51, 52. He had already written 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians around 55, 56. And then he writes Romans. So when I look at these earlier letters, the first six of these hardships, he's already experienced as he relates all of this in these prior letters. So go with me to 1 Corinthians. And I want you to notice something in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, when you read the psalmist, the psalmist will say, for thy sake we're killed all the day long. We face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then I read about Paul, and he's raising all of these questions about tribulation and distress and persecution, hunger, nakedness, danger, all of these words that he's using. Now, when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we all know, 
This is the great resurrection chapter. And when you talk about the resurrection, remember we're talking about the resurrection of the body, which would be abhorrent to a Greek. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but they did not believe in any kind of resurrection of the body. Paul is arguing for a bodily resurrection. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. But when you're reading through this chapter, you come to a very intriguing statement. And it's found in verse 29. Now I want you to notice verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. And notice the way it reads. For otherwise... Why are they practicing, the ones being baptized for the dead, if the dead not at all are being raised? Why then are they being baptized for them? Now that's a very intriguing statement. What in the world is he talking about? And there are a number of explanations for it. And a lot of it hinges upon the preposition for, which is used here in verse 29, twice. And if you think of the preposition, let me just read the preposition. For otherwise, why are they practicing the ones who are being baptized, who pair for the dead? If the dead are not at all being raised, why then are they being baptized, who pair for them? So who perish used twice. And the question would be, how do you translate who pair? Some would say, well, you can translate it over or above. So if you translate it over and above, then some would say Paul is going back to a superstitious practice that was taking place in Corinth where individuals were being baptized over the graves of those who had died. So they were being baptized over these graves or above these graves as though there was something magical about it. So it was kind of a superstitious practice. You know what the Mormons do? The Mormons, of course, are engaged in proxy baptism where that's why that's the reason why they're so big in genealogies and all of this, where individuals are being baptized for someone who has died. So you have this constantly taking place in Mormon temples where you have individuals who are being baptized for someone who has died. And if you talk to a Mormon, they're going to make a beeline to this verse to try to say, this is proxy baptism. And you can be baptized for someone who's already physically died. Now that, of course, is heresy. Now if you think about it, the preposition pair normally doesn't mean over or above. The root means that. It means rather in the place of, instead of. So if you take it that way, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. Why would people be baptized in the place of those who have already died, 
almost filling up their ranks, if there's no reality to a resurrection? What would be the point in identifying oneself with Christ if this is the end of it all and there's no conscious existence after death? What? Why, why would you identify yourself with Christ and experience persecution and difficulties if there's not something more? So that's the way I'm going to take verse 29. I'm not going to take it as a superstitious practice or proxy baptism for someone who's dead. This is someone who's very much alive, who's being baptized, identifying themselves with Christ, taking the place of those Christians who have already died. Why would you do that unless there's a resurrection? That's Paul's argument. So if I read verse 29, let's read it this way. For otherwise, why are they practicing the ones being baptized in the place of the dead? If the dead, not at all, are being raised, why then are they being baptized in the place of them? Then verse 30. Why also are we being in danger every hour. And then verse 31, I am dying daily. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, why would I expose my body to physical death every day and experience all the difficulties I'm experiencing if there's no resurrection from the dead. Why would I do that? Why would I put myself in jeopardy if there's no resurrection? That's what he's saying. So when you read verse 21, I'm dying daily, he's not talking about some spiritual death. He's talking physical death. He's exposing himself to physical death every day. So when you read it here in verse 30, why also are we being in danger every hour? I am dying daily. Then he says, brothers, by your boasting, which I'm having in Christ Jesus our Lord, something like, yes, surely as I'm able to boast about you. And then then verse 32, if, and he uses this phrase meaning something like, in accordance with human standards, I have fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. What to me the prophet, if the dead are not being raised? Let's eat, let's drink, for tomorrow we are dying. Now he's referring to something that happened in Ephesus. And he talks about fighting with wild animals. Now, we know that he didn't literally do this. There's no record of, of this happening at all, that he literally fought with animals in some arena. He was a Roman citizen. That could not happen to him. So he's not using this in a literal way. He's using this in a metaphysical, in a, in a, in a, a metaphorical way. So when he says he fought with wild beasts, he's talking about enemies. He's talking about individuals who have do, done harmful things to him while he was in Ephesus. He just simply makes the statement here to the Corinthians. And if you remember, 
when he writes this letter, where was he? He was in Ephesus. He was in Ephesus when he writes this letter. So you read the verse 32. If according to human standards, I fought with wild animals in Ephesus, what to me the prophet if the dead are not being raised? Let's eat, let's drink, for tomorrow we die. You see it? That's a citation from the book of Isaiah. That is taken from Isaiah chapter 22. Let me just read it. This is in verse 13 of Isaiah 22. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we shall die. Isaiah 22, 13. Let me read one more statement from Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 12. Come ye, say they, I'll fetch wine. We'll fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. Isaiah 56, verse 12. Or do you remember the rich farmer that Jesus set forth in the gospel of Luke in the parable? Listen to it as I read it. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth good crops. He thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to store my fruits. He said, this I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build greater and there I'll bestow all my fruits and all my goods. I'll say to my soul, soul, thou as much goods. Later for many years, take thy knees, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that lays up treasure for himself. It is not rich towards God. Luke 12, verses 16, down to verse 21. When Paul says this, let's eat, let's drink, for tomorrow we die, he said, let's be Epicureans. If there's no resurrection from the dead, and there's no afterlife at all, and this is all there is, let's live like an Epicurean. And an Epicurean is someone who believed that everything happened by chance, Death ended everything. The gods were remote. They could care less about what's happening here and that pleasure is the chief end of man. So if there's nothing more than the here and now, let's become materialist. Let's eat, drink. Tomorrow we're going to die. But Paul says there is a resurrection. That is the reason why people are baptized. That is the reason why I expose my body to physical death every day. That's the reason why I experienced what I did in Ephesus when I was attacked by these enemies, these wild animals, and all the terrible things that they did. The only reason I experienced all of that is because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But you think of the hardships. Think of the things that he experienced. Now, he doesn't go into what he experienced at Ephesus. He just makes the comment here, as you read it in 1 Corinthians 15. But he comes back to it in his second letter. Would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1?
2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 8. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble. See that word trouble? You know what that word is? That first word in that list of seven possibilities, pressure? That's this word, same word. For we would not, brothers, have you ignorant of our pressure, our trouble, which came to us in Asia. Asia? Where in Asia? Ephesus was the capital of Asia. He's talking about what happened in Ephesus. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, our pressure, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened out of measure, above strength, and so much that we despaired even of life. We had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raised the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. So he encountered something. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He fought wild beasts in Ephesus. He thought he was going to die as a result of it, but the Lord delivered him out of that problem. But think about the trouble that he experienced. Now come to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4. Look at verse 8. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. You see the word troubled and the word distressed? Those are the two verbs of the two nouns of the first two possibilities of those seven of Romans 8.35. These are the verbs. The nouns are there. Trouble, distress. These are the verbs. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted. You remember that word in that list of seven possibilities? Here's the same word. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death works in us, but life in you. We have in the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, and he quotes the word of the psalmist, I believed and therefore have I spoken, Paul says, we also believe, and therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Now turn to chapter 6. Notice the language in verse 4. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience. Now look at this. In afflictions... That's the word pressure, trouble, in necessity, in distresses. That's the same word that's used in Romans 8.35. So you have afflictions, distresses. Those are the first two words of Romans 8.35. In stripes, that's beatings. In imprisonments, in attacks, in labors, in watchings, watchings, sleeplessness, in fastings. You know what fastings would mean? Hunger. 
So verse four, afflictions, distresses. And then he mentions in verse five, hunger. So you're reading these words here. Now turn to chapter 11. Verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ referring to these false apostles? Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Now now notice what he experienced. In labors more abundant, in beatings above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. Of the Jews, five times, I received 40 stripes, save one. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. Three times, I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day, I've been in the deep. Now in verse 26, you remember the word danger? That same word is used eight times in this one verse. In journeys often, in dangers of waters, in dangers of robbers, in dangers by my own countrymen, in dangers by the heathen, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers in the sea, in dangers among false brethren. Eight times he uses that word danger to be in jeopardy. And you think of all of the things that he experienced. Now listen to the words of one who puts it like this. The distances traveled by the Apostle Paul are nothing short of staggering. In point of fact, the New Testament registers the equivalent of about 13,400 airline miles that the apostle journeyed. 13,400 airline miles. And if one takes into account the circuitous roads he necessarily had to employ at times, the total distance traveled would exceed that figure by a sizable margin. Considering the means of transportation available in the Roman world, like walking, the average distance traveled in a day, like 17 to 23 miles, the primitive pass, rugged, sometimes mountainous terrain over which he had to venture, the sheer expenditure of the apostle's physical energy becomes unfathomable for us. Many of those miles carried Paul through unsafe and hostile environments, largely controlled by bandits who eagerly awaited a prey. Accordingly, Paul's commitment to the Lord entailed a spiritual vitality that was inextricably joined to a superlative level of physical stamina and fearless courage. I mean, just think about what he was willing to do for the cause of Christ. And you read of these dangers that he talks about in verse 26. Then verse 27. In weariness and painfulness, 
and watchings often, sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness beside those things that are without that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches. I mean, just think of all of the things he experienced. Then you come to chapter 12. He talks about the thorn in the flesh, this physical problem that he had. Pick up the reading in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. For this thing, I besought the Lord three times, this thorn in the flesh, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee, but my strength is made complete in weakness. Then Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now look at verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in, now look, infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, look now, in persecutions, look at this word, in distresses, that's the same word that's used in Romans 8.35, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. So when I come to Romans chapter 8, and I'm reading verse 35, I have to understand that Paul had already experienced the first six of these possibilities, these hardships, these adversities before this letter was even written. And furthermore, he's going to experience the last one when the Roman state severs his head from his body by way of the sword. He was decapitated by the Roman state. He experienced the seventh one. Now turn with me to his last letter before he was executed. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 10. And verse 11, 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. Thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, patience. Now look at this. Persecutions, afflictions, which came to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, described in Acts 13 and 14, what persecutions I endured. Remember what happened to him at Lystra when he was stoned? But out of them all, the Lord delivered me. They come to chapter 4, pick up the reading in verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom beware also, for he has violently stood against our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me 
and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me for his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see what he's saying? I think of the words of Socrates to his enemies. They may kill me, but they can't hurt me. Afflictions may kill me. They can take away my life, but they cannot take away Christ. They cannot take away my salvation. They can take me away, but they cannot take away what I have in Christ. The psalmist said, and God, I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, 11, what can man do to me? They can kill me, but that's all they can do. They can kill me. But the moment they kill me, I'm in the presence of Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus said? Fear not them who killed the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. We better be fearful of him. I'm not fearful of what man can do. They can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. And the moment the believer departs from this body, the believer's in the presence of the Lord. I think of Augustine, and he's going back to the answer of God to Moses. Thou canst not see my face and live. To which Augustine replied, Then, Lord, let me die that I may see thy face. I mean, the moment we die, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we're in the very presence of the Lord. Now, I cannot think about this without thinking of a particular statement. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I want you to notice this statement in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. Whom, that's Jesus Christ, the end of verse 7 is Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you are loving, unto whom now, while not seeing, but believing, you rejoice and with joy inexpressible and full of glory. See what Peter's saying? We haven't seen Jesus Christ now, but we love him. We love him, but we haven't seen him. So we believe. We're exercising belief. But one day we're going to actually see him. And the belief will be turned to sight. 
And when that happens, if we love him now and we haven't even seen him, what is it going to be like when we actually see him? So, so when you read it in verse 8, whom not seeing you are loving, unto whom, look at, look at your adverb, now, now, unto whom now, while not seeing but believing. You rejoice it with joy inexpressible and glorified, full of glory. So the moment we step out of our body and we're in the very presence of Jesus Christ, we've, we're exercising faith now, but we've never seen it. But when we, when, when we die, we're in his presence and we're actually seeing him. Now listen to Chrysostom. This is John Chrysostom. He's brought before the Roman emperor. He's threatened if he remains a Christian. And I want you to listen to John Chrysostom's response. Thou canst not banish me for this world is my father's house. I'll slay thee. Nay, thou canst not. For my life is hid with Christ in God. I'll take away your treasures. No, thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. I'll drive thee away from man and thou shalt have no friend left. No, thou canst not, for I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. Now you think of the Apostle Paul. He's raising the question. He says for this documentation, I got to come back to the citation. I got to come back to that citation. But the proposition is in verse 37. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So it is utterly impossible. Nothing can separate a believer from this love. Nothing can. But I've got to come back to it. This is not based upon my love. This is based upon his love. His hesed, his steadfast love, his loyal love. And he's always faithful to his promises. We're here for a brief, brief period of time. And it's all preparation for another realm. And that's what we have to keep in our minds. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We think of the Apostle Paul and the example he set forth. And even the psalmist in setting forth those words of Psalm 44. Even though he's grappling over all of that, we know he clung to what he knew to be right. And we think of ourselves, Father, and we think of all the promises given to us. But we just pray that we would always go back to that, that that would anchor us in the midst of whatever we might be encountering or experiencing in this life. And we just pray, Father, that thou would just guide us and direct us in all that's happening so that we would understand these promises and truly believe them. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.